are new, uh, my name is Simon. I'm the lead pastor here, and I would love to meet you before you leave today, uh, hear how you got to find out about us and hear your story a little bit. Uh, for those watching online, so glad that we can serve you in this way and that you can continue uh, to learn and hear God's word in a way that's a little bit unique and a little bit differently. But with that being said, I want to just kind of jump right in, and I want to start with the idea with just what we've been experiencing for the last like couple of weeks with the weather, right? It's, it's, we live in a harsh world. Is that a fair statement? Like, the environment is very unpredictable. Now, that may be hard for us to understand because we live in the land of sunshine. And if, if, the, if the temperature swings like 10 degrees, we're either going to die of heat exhaustion or we're going to freeze to death. And everyone is all in their big galoshes and their heavy raincoats. God bless you. So, <laughs> appreciate you very much. But here's the thing, if you were to try to go and live in Minnesota in the wintertime, I, I don't even say anymore, do I? You're like, no way. How can people, like, do they have igloos out there? Is that how they actually live? Because it's such a harsh environment. But what you start to realize is that there are all these places like that that seem like no life can actually live there. It seems uninhabitable, but yet we find that human beings are able to live in very extreme places, whether that is the desert or whether that's in the Arctic. It doesn't really matter. People are living in these spots that we can't think about living in. But the point is this. We can endure and survive more than we actually think. Now, if you want to know a little about me, it's not uncommon that when severe weather hits, and you can ask my wife and you can ask my kids, I tend to find myself going out into the elements. So this week has been a great week of going outside when it's raining and it's pouring and it's nasty. Uh, I like to be in snowstorms. I like to be outside and experience the power of God in those moments. As a matter of fact, last night, I spent about, oh, oh gosh, it was almost two hours. I sat in my hot tub while it was just dumping rain on top of me. It's like hot, cold, so you're perfect. It's just this weird moment, and I just love doing that. But it makes me remember that I can be in situations that I don't think I should be, that I've been designed by a maker to endure more than I think I can. And so as we move into this new series on the book of James, that's really what he's trying to communicate to the people he's writing to in this letter, that you can endure more than you understand. See, his letter, it is a letter, but it doesn't really read like a letter. If you've gone through it, it reads like a sermon. It's like James is just preaching and he's getting after it really hard. See, he understands that the world is harsh. He understands that it's difficult, that it can feel like the world is going to beat you down. And it seems like, as Christians, that the world is completely against us. And let me just put you at ease. It is. The world is actually against you for how you live your life. If you follow what God's word says, if you believe the Bible, if you practice that, and that becomes your worldview, the world is saying, you're going against what we believe. And so now we're against you, and you're the enemy. That is bound to happen. But James doesn't want to leave you with this hopelessness. He wants to point us to hope, the hope that we have in Christ to endure the circumstances that are happening. Now, the recipients of this letter from James was the church in Jerusalem, but they were going through hard times. It wasn't like things were all hunky-dory and rosy. Now, I'll say a lot of times that I think that we live in a very soft society. 
And what I mean is that the men and women that have come before us for the last couple of thousand years are tough. They could endure, I mean, they were on wagon trains going across the United States trying to get to these new lands. They were living in very rural, hard homes. They didn't have AC. They didn't have heating. They were living in places that you shouldn't be living in without either of those things. And it's not that I'm against things that are making our home comfortable. I like that my house doesn't leak. I like that it has heating. I, I like that it has air conditioning. I like that I have cuddly blankets on my bed that I go, oh, I'm warm and I feel great about life. But what I am saying is that there is a danger in that sometimes and that there is a lie that could be communicated that drips into our life. It's that this is the lie, that life should be comfortable, that life should be easy. And let me tell you, it's not. And if you believe that it should be, when things go wrong in life, you're going to lose it. You're going to freak out. You're going to be upset. You're going to think that God is a bad God because, like, well, I, it should be easy. See, these men and women, they were going through a massive famine that was going through the land in Jerusalem during that time. Massive famine that was happening. The, the people of the early church, the majority of them, lived in huge poverty. Poverty that we couldn't understand. So not only is there not a lot of food to go around, they couldn't even afford the little bit of food that was going around. So they're trying to get food, they're trying to scratch out something. But even more than that, now they're dealing with the fact that they're under persecution because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And so they're being attacked because of their spiritual beliefs, they don't have any money, they don't have any food. It's a lot. And James is speaking to that. So James, as tradition would say, this is in the Bible, but tradition historians would say this is how James' life went, that he at some point was persuaded by the uh, people, the, the, the religious leaders of that time, that they were, they were following Jesus, that we don't want people to follow Jesus. Now, James was really well known in that community. He was a God-fearing man. He, he practiced the law. He lived out what it meant to be a good Jewish man. And so they respected him. And they said, hey, we want you to go up on top of the temple. We want you to communicate to the people and say, hey, Jesus isn't really the Lord and Savior, so just make sure that they know that. And so James is like, sure, I'll go up on top of the temple. He's like, what a great opportunity. I can tell everybody about Jesus, how he is the Lord and he is the Savior. So he does that. And tradition says that the leaders freaked out. They threw him off the temple to say, like, stop saying that. And then when he hit the ground, didn't die. So they start throwing rocks at him. And the guy's like, no, don't throw rocks. And then he kills him with a club. That's James. So this is the kind of environment that was existing during that time. Now, this letter was written way before that. But what we see is that it's written to a certain group of people. Who's it written to? It's written to the church in Jerusalem. Somewhere around the, the mid to, to later 40 AD is kind of when that took place. But understand that he is writing to believers. He is writing to Christians, men and women who have placed their hope and their trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That's who he's writing to. That's who he's bringing encouragement to in this. And most scholars, myself included, believe that the writer of the letter, James, is the half-brother of Jesus. That's who wrote it. That's who I believe wrote it. I think it makes sense. I've, I've done the research that that's who that is. And I think it's even more powerful if you realize that his brother is writing that he is the Savior of the world. He is God incarnate. He is the Messiah. Because here's the thing. 
If I was to go like, hey, uh, just so you know, I am the Messiah. I have never sinned. I am perfect in all ways, and I'm going to lead you to the promised land. The first people to rebuke me will be my brothers. They're like, oh, no, we know you. You're a horrible, horrible person. You are wicked and evil in all ways because they've lived with me. They know everything about me. There is nothing that I've hidden. And so here we have James the brother of Jesus saying, no, he is the Christ. If anyone should be doubting his deity, it would be James. And yet we see that it's not. Now, historically, the book of James has been hard for many people. It has not been a book that people have been like, this is the best book ever. Um, as a matter of fact, many theologians have been like, not a big fan of this book. To name one is Martin Luther. Maybe you've heard of him. The great reformer once said this. This is a direct quote from Martin Luther. Therefore, St. James's epistle is really an epistle of straw. Compared to these others, it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. You're like, don't we like Martin Luther, right? Yeah, good guy, love Jesus. <laughs> so you got to ask the question, why would James, I mean, why would Martin Luther say that? Well, because you have to remember what's going on when he's existing. He is in the place where he is a part of the Catholic Church. He's realizing they are hyper-focused on works for righteousness, that if you do all these right things, then God will be pleased with you. It's the reason why he wrote his thesis. It's the reason why he nailed it to the door. He's saying, no, like, this is not what the Bible says. By grace through faith, that is what saves us. It's not our good works. The good works are based on what Jesus did, not on what we do. And so as he's seeing this letter, it does have a lot to do with how we live our life and works. So there's a reason why he would, be a, he would be more drawn towards the letters of Paul, as Paul talks about those things. But you have to understand that we talk about Paul and we talk about James, they're not in contradiction. They're not actually against you. The Bible does not contradict itself. The Bible is in agreement with it. So we have to understand that Paul, as he was writing, he was fighting against legalism. He was fighting against the idea of being saved by works of righteousness. He would say, no, we, that's not how we're saved. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ. He did the work, we didn't. That's what we go through. But James is fighting a battle as well. It's antinomianism. That's what he's fighting. The idea that it doesn't matter how we live our lives now because we're not under the law. Oddly enough, Paul says similar things to what James is saying in his letters later on. Uh, in Ephesians 4, 1 through 2, it says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. He's talking about, hey, it matters how you live your life. And that's exactly what James is pressing into. It's about living out your faith, not earning it. He's talking to those that have been saved. He's talking to Christians and that the words of Jesus and the words of God, they actually transform how we see everything and how we live and what we do. We're new creations. This was the thrust of a lot of what Gary talked about last week, isn't it? That we're new creations in Christ. And so that we have a new heart and a new spirit so we can live in a different way. And I think Gary did a great job. And if you haven't told him, go tell him. Embarrass him a little bit. Make him feel good. And by the way, I thought that John did a fantastic job as well. Very pleased with the, the, the godly men at this church. It's so encouraging to me. 
See, this book is going to look at birth and growth and development in the Christian's life. See, it holds that tension of faith and works working together, that they're linked. A lot of times we try to separate the two out. And what James is saying is you can't separate the two out. It's like when you become married, the Bible says you become one flesh, that we're connected. What God has joined together, let no one try to separate, right? It's, it's this idea like you can't say something's water and not wet. They just work together. They just, they're just a part of who they are. And he's saying that this idea of your faith is going to play out in how you live. If it's truly transforming, if you have a new heart, you're going to live differently. And the big idea is that we're going to respond differently to the things that happen in this world than the world does. And we are going to stand out. Now, this book is broken up into uh, a number of different ways. And um, sometimes we can see the things that happen on Sunday like, oh, Sunday just kind of comes together. No, it doesn't. It takes a lot of work to make a Sunday happen, to have the band, to have the slides, to have the sun. There's all these things that have to happen. And as we were moving into this book, we really wanted to communicate the major themes in the book through everything that we did. And so if you see this slide, this slide took a lot of work. This graphic didn't just come together like, oh, it's artistic and it's art deco. It's no, everything actually has a meaning on this particular slide. Dave and I sat down uh, a number of different times for hours at a time talking through what was going on and what we wanted to accomplish. And after we talked, David came up with this, and I think he did a fantastic job. But if you understand all the little symbols, it's going to make a lot more sense. The reality is this you got these dots on the side, right? These 12 dots. They're there for a reason. There are 12 major teaching sections in the book of James. So right now, today, we're going to be in the intro, which is going to be a flyby high over of where James wants to go in the letter. Then he's going to have these 12 sections that he's going to be preaching through and talking about and how those work. See, in the middle, you've got this, this section right up here, right? There's one dot right there, that big yellow and black one. See, that is uh, talking about the wholeness, the completeness, the oneness that we can have. And you might be looking at it going, well, what's all the, the black lines? What are those? Those are the fractured circle. That is, James is writing to the men and women of this book that there is a fractured part of who they are in their walk that God is trying to make whole, which is the other side of that dot. Then you say, well, what are these little seven dots down here for? Those seven dots represent the seven times that the word teleos is used in this particular book of the Bible. Now, the word teleos, it means this. It's, it's an adjective. It's, it's perfect, mature, complete, initiated, fully developed. Sometimes integrity is used for that as well. See, it's used five times in the actual word teleos, but then two more times it's in the verb form that takes place. So the word looks different, but it's still there, same idea. And so those seven dots represent that. And so we've even gone a little bit farther that as we move through the study, we actually have a reading plan. So for those of you that are young, we have this one, and for those of you who are old, we have this one. So that way it's a little bit bigger, a little bit nicer, you know? It just We're, we're just trying to think a little bit more because we love you. And so grab the appropriate one. As we see what pile gets lower, we'll know how many people we have at our church and where we stand. <laughs> but this actually has a weekly reading plan. And what happens is there are all these other verses that attach to what's going on in the study. 
And so we want you to be just submerged completely in the book of James. That's why we sent you guys an email. That's why we did the Facebook thing saying, hey, read through the book of James before you come. Be acquainted with what we're going to talk about. If you're really savvy, you can hit the QR code, and it'll take you to Spotify. And if you go to Spotify, there's actually a, a list. And so every week, you can listen to this really cool reading of that scripture. And then there's songs that coincide with that reading. We just want you to be a part of what James is trying to communicate. Now, this book is sometimes called the Proverbs of the New Testament. Because it actually pulls ideas and themes from Proverbs 1 through 9. That's a book in the Old Testament. As we think about the Old Testament, our mind tends to go to law and living out the law, which is funny because in the Old Testament, they couldn't and they kept failing. But what does God show? Grace and mercy over and over again to draw them back to him. But it also pulls from another part of the Bible, the Sermon on the Mount given by Jesus in the New Testament, which is talking about the fact that Jesus is our Savior, that he has extended grace and mercy to all that would call on his name. See, it's focused on the wisdom of God with the intention that would produce teleos. That's why we named the sermon we did. God's wisdom for teleos. That's why the title even exists the way it's at. See, James wants these readers to understand that there can be completeness and maturity in their life, that they can grow through this. See, integrity is an interesting word, and that's what he's talking about here. The idea that we would do the right thing when no one's looking. That's the definition that we use at our house all the time. Because here's why. Because if no one's looking, there's no consequences, so it means that's who you really are. And that's why James is pressing so hard into these men and women. He wants them to grow in their faith. We call this concept progressive sanctification, meaning this. And I love this definition that I found this week. Progressive sanctification... Progressive sanctification is what gradually separates the people of God from the world and makes them more and more like Jesus Christ. Now, let me tell you what that's not saying. That is not saying, all right, Christians, gather up, get in a huddle, stay away from the world, reject them, and just wait for Jesus to come back, and ah, they're all going to burn. That's not what it's saying. And here's why, because that's not what Jesus did, is it? Jesus' ministry of three years, he engaged the world, he brought truth to them, but what it is saying, it's saying that you don't have to act and think and respond like the world. As we become more and more like Jesus, we're going to think more and more like Jesus. We're not going to move to what the world does say is good, right, perfect, true, and holy. No, we move to what God says is good, right, perfect, and true, and holy. That's the direction that we're going. Now, we are going to hit the intro today. We are going to go through this big section, um, and we will get to those 12 sections. And I encourage you, as we read through those, ask God, God, what are you telling me? What do you want me to learn? What do you want me to press into? Where are areas that I don't have the teleos, the, the wholeness, the completeness in my life that you're asking? So let's do this. Normally, we jump around all over the Bible, yeah? Not today. I promise you, we're only going to be in James 1, 1 through 18. That is it. That is all we're going to do. That was, you're like, well, how are we going to do that? We just spent 20 plus minutes doing an intro. I know, isn't it great? It's a great intro. <laughs> Let's read and see what God would have for us. 
James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes and the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For, what, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of, of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower, flower fell, falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, for he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desires, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, for every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's go ahead and pray, and we'll jump into this section. Jesus, thank you for this book. Thank you for pressing into us to love us enough to call us to a life that is full, that is whole, that is complete, not one that is fractured because of sin. And Lord, as we walk through this life, I ask that you would keep growing us, engaging us, strengthening us, challenging us, pushing us into things that seem too difficult for us to push into. Lord, I don't know where the men and women are here today, but I know that there's probably a lot that come with heavy hearts that are struggling and going through difficult trials. Lord, I ask that they would place their joy and their hope in you and you alone, that you would grow them and stretch them to be steadfast in their faith. I love you. I pray these things in your glorious and amazing name. Amen. <clears throat> now, James is a straight shooter. He doesn't really beat around the bush, does he? He just kind of comes out of the gate and is like, all right, here we go. Boom, boom, boom. Let's get after it. And my first point is this, what draws us towards God? Uh, or you can even look at it this way, that which builds teleos. That's really what he's talking about. And he starts with a very bold statement that we are to find joy in trials. Trial, like when things are hard, when it's difficult, when bad things happened. Now, mind what he's saying. He's not actually saying that you are to love the trial. Like, I love it when people die. I love it when people... That's not what he's saying. We're not to love the hardship. That's not the direction that he's going. And this phrase of various kinds is the unexpected things that happen in life. The word when is present, isn't it? When these trials happen, not if. When they happen, they are going to happen. There is no... I just keep learning this, that life is full of all sorts of stuff, and the world is going to throw a lot of junk at you. Some of it's great. 
Some of it's fantastic and it's wonderful and it's an adventure. And there's a lot that's not so great. There's a lot that's not so much fun. There's a lot that's really hard. Things like sickness and death and and pain and betrayal and adultery and physical abuse and war and loss. It's sure to happen. But what does it mean? Like, joy? What is he even saying with joy? Well, the word joy is translated this way. Anything that causes cheer and dispels gloom. Meaning that joy has this ability to move gloom away from the believer, from the individual. That there is, a, there, there is something bigger. Like the joy that we have is in something bigger than the current circumstances happening. So if you're a, a young child and you're a birthday party and you get a piece of cake and you drop that, that, piece, of, that piece of cake, there's a tragedy there. But it's okay because there's an entire cake there. And it's bigger than your tragedy that just took place. And joy can still exist in that moment. And that's what he's trying to say, that there is something greater and bigger than the current circumstance you're going through. Now, I don't ever want to make light of the trials or the difficulty that someone's going through because I don't know what that is and I haven't experienced that in your world. But I will say this, that in the grand scheme of eternity... On the other side of eternity with Christ, all those things fade away and they all drift and they all become very small in light of the fullness and the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. They lose their luster. And I mean, think about this from a small standpoint. Remember being in junior high? Some that's easier than others. But you're in junior high and you had that first love. I love her, I love him, they're my everything, they're my life, and they don't see it that way. <laughs> and, and they're like, and, you know, and you're like, oh, my world is falling apart, it's horrible. And if you've been married or you've met someone else, you're like, what's the name of that person? I don't remember their name. You understand, like, this is what we're talking about. Like, there is something better and bigger and more profound. I, don't, I can't remember most of the names of the girls that I did. Now, I got a wife named Annette, and that's nailed it. <laughs> Fooled her good. Um, but trials do something. That's the idea, that trials have the ability to do something. Have you ever asked the question, what is the purpose of all of this? Like, is there any meaning in this pain? Is there any meaning in this trial? Like, is it all for naught? Because if it is all for naught, it's so crushing, isn't it? It's so depressing. It's so burdensome. If there's no purpose behind it, it's just hurt and pain for the sake of hurt and pain. But that's not what James is trying to communicate. See, there is something for this. There's a reason for all that's going on here. Like he's writing to a church that's spread out, that's been attacked over persecution, that has no food, that has no money. He wants them to know that God has not abandoned them, but he is actively working in their lives. He hasn't run away. He's actually pressing in. See, God is bigger and better than their situation. See, these trials are meant to test our faith. They're meant to see where we are in our walk and in our relationship with the Lord. 
and how we are trusting Jesus in all these different areas. See, it's a gauge. It's a measuring stick. It shows us where we are. It helps us to evaluate, where am I in my relationship with God as I walk with Him? Testing can be translated as genuineness is a way that it can be looked at. The state of not being fake or counterfeit. And that's really what James is saying. He's like, I don't want your faith to be some kind of wishy-washy, come and go with the tides of the world faith. I want a faith that is, that's rooted in Jesus with the joy that springs forth from Jesus that we can move into difficult situations without fear, knowing that God is good and protects us. See, the byproduct of this testing is steadfast is the word that James would use. Steadfast is also sometimes uh, translated as endurance, the power to withstand hardship or stress. Um, I think watching the news in Northern California being battered right now, we know what things that were developed by engineers that have a steadfast to them and those that don't. The piers in Santa Cruz, not steadfast. The breaker at Data Point, steadfast. It is holding back the waves. The waves come and crash against it. They do not push through the breakers, do they? They're these huge cement columns and pylons that aren't going to be moved by the water. Because if they weren't there, what would happen to the harbor? Boats would be destroyed and smashed and thrown around. See, the reality is that we are going through this life, and life is hard, and it is throwing all these things at us. And James wants the readers, the believers, to have a steadfast faith that when the difficulties that are sure to come are going to come at them, that they can endure it and not crumble and be thrown around by the world. See, as we become steadfast in who we are, we are having the full effect, which is the word teleos. That's the first time it's used. It says that we may be perfect, teleos, complete and lacking in nothing. See, this makes us strong. And I don't know when this idea came up, but it's this idea that Christians are weak and that they just, they cave, that they're not strong at all. And I just never understood, like, why, why are we always saying that Christians are these weak? No, it's saying that Christians are supposed to be strong. They are supposed to endure. They are supposed to have steadfastness. As, as, a, as a young man, I was attracted to the idea of this thought that God says, it's going to be hard, and I want you to be able to endure it. I want you to go out into the elements of this world and endure what seems like you can't be able to endure, that I am going to make you strong in these hard moments. And that's what God is calling us to, to be strong Christian men and women that endure the trials of this world because of sin. And that he's given us the Holy Spirit to strengthen us. And as we watch him work, as we see him show up, as we see him create a steadfastness, as we see that he is faithful, that he is true, it grows our faith day and day and day. And you might say, Simon, I don't know how to do this. I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't even know where to start. Verse 5 through 8 tells us that if you lack the wisdom and understand how to endure this trial, how to go through this trial, he says, 
Ask God for this wisdom. Why? Because God is generous. He is so generous. He gives out of his love that has no end, that has no bottom, and he can just give and give and give and give to all that are that are struggling, that are going through this hard time that they can endure. Ask God and he will do that. He says, but don't do it with a wishy-washy way of asking. Don't do it with criticism or complaining. Faith means trusting God. It means believing in the fact that he died for our sins. And if he has died for our sins and given us eternal life and salvation, why is giving wisdom such a hard thing for him to do to his people? Why would he hold that back? Why would he not be kind and loving and merciful and generous like he already has been? He's already shown his character. To doubt means that we're putting our trust in something else. Or even worse, that we're saying that we don't believe that God is telling the truth, which would make him a liar, which makes him sinful, which makes him then not God. So my question for this section is this. Where do you turn in trials? Where do you run to? What is the thing that you look for comfort and joy and strength in? My second point is this. What draws us away from God? Are that which destroys teleos. These are the things that weaken our faith. These are the things that distract us from Jesus, that move us to something else. These are the things that make us look for joy and hope and comfort and protection in something other than Christ. And he gives us these two positions that we can look at to kind of understand the rich person and the poor person. To the poor, he says, don't let your current situation, don't let that hardship define you. That's not what actually defines you as who you are. Your identity isn't in your status or your bank account. It's not in what you're going through or your physical ailment. No. Your identity and what defines you is in your new position in the kingdom of heaven. And it is being a child of God. The God of the universe, the most amazing being that's ever existed, loves you, cares for you, and has brought you in. He says, don't, don't focus on that situation. But then he kind of moves to the rich. He says, your hope is not found in the zeros in your bank account. Do not think because you have a bunch of zeros, it means that life is great and life is grand and, and everything's fantastic. He says, no, it's not about what you've earned or what you've done. That's a gift from God. It's not in your wealth or your status. Take a humble position. Because God has saved you in your brokenness and in your sin. That God had mercy on you to not put your trust and your hope in money. But that while you were enemies of God, he made you a child of God. While you were far from God, he's brought you near. That while you were dead, he's given you life. That's humbling because you didn't earn it and you didn't deserve it. But because he is good, he is the one that's done it. Why does he say that? Because life is fleeting. Life will end. We are like everything else. We have been created, and because of sin, it will pass away. And if our hope is not found in Jesus, then we actually have nothing. 
The beauty of the flower will wither and fall. It doesn't matter how strong you are. It doesn't matter how good-looking you are. Gravity will always win. <laughs> so much more I want to say. <laughs> We're going to pass from this earth. And then what? What do you do when you stand before the creator of the world and says, why should I allow you into my kingdom? Well, I'm really rich. I'm really good looking. I'm strong. I'm popular. I have status. No. If it's in anything else, then Jesus, you will not be going in. You will not be with him. You will not get to be a part of who he is. And he's saying, I have gone to great lengths to show you that you can't do it, and I could do it, so I did it for you. And if you've placed your life in my life, you get to be with the Father because he is pleased with the life that Jesus has lived, and your life is hidden in the life of Jesus. And you can do that for eternity because they couldn't kill Jesus because he rose from the dead. He is eternal. And if your life is locked in his, that means that you are. You see what's going on here? Do you see what he did on the cross? Anyone that would place their life in Christ will be saved and have this assurance. And that's who he's talking to, the men and women that have placed their life in the life of Jesus Christ. But we can sometimes kind of get bogged down by the world, can't we? And we can let it distract us and make us think that that's, God isn't good, He doesn't love us. No, He does. See, what you have faith in will dictate how you respond to this world. Hey, we all have faith in something. Like, there's no new thing here. Everyone, I have a faith in nothing. Then your faith is in nothing. <laughs> you have a faith in something. Like, everything is a faith, and what you have your faith in, what you believe, will produce fruit, and you will live that out, and that's called works. That's exactly what James is saying. What have you placed your faith in will determine how you live your life. See, James wants us to know before we get into this bulk of this teaching, that idea that the man or the woman who is steadfast in the trials of life will be blessed because this test is life. One big test. Welcome. You're like, I hate pop quizzes. You're in one. Till you die, you're in the test. The prize is Jesus and being with the Father. Like, this is the race that we're in. This is the prize that we have is to be with the Father for all eternity. And he wants to move this idea of, like, temptation is not from God. Like, if Let's just be honest. We live in a society that we want to blame everyone else for everything, and God's like the best scapegoat to blame things on. It's God's fault. I can't take credit for anything. And he's like, hey, before you even try to pin the temptations in your life on God, it doesn't work that way. Because the word tempt has this negative connotation, doesn't it? To tempt is to get someone to do something that they shouldn't do. Why in the world would God, who sent his son to die on the cross for your sins, try to get you to sin? That makes no sense. It cost him the very best. It cost him his son. He's not here. He's for you, not against you. As a matter of fact, when the Israelites were constantly sinning and rebelling, he wasn't like, I did it! Got you! No, he's like, what are you doing? Come back, repent, reject that. It's not good for you. It's dangerous. Come back to me. God wants what is good for us. 
He is not against us. It says our temptation comes from our own heart. It comes from our own brokenness. It comes from our own fracturedness, our own desires, constantly being brought to the surface in our life. There was this song that I talked about, Refiner's Fire, you know, wipe the dross away. And I'm like, what's dross? I don't understand how that word is. There's a lot of words in, in like, the, the church that, like, I have no idea what they mean. I have to, like, look them up all the time. You're in good company if you feel the same way. And so I talked to them, like, what is dross? It's like, well, when they pull gold out of the ground or any kind of, um, you know, ore from the ground, there's, like, lots of stuff mixed in it. And so what they do is they put in this, you know, for lack of a better term, a big pot. And they heat that pot up. Now, with gold, it's pretty simple. Gold is heavier than dirt, right? So what's going to rise to the top? Dirt, all the impurities. And so the reality is this, is like what we're going through in life is refining us just like that gold. That life creates pressure and heat and discomfort, doesn't it? But in that process, in that hardship, all that stuff comes to the surface. You ever wonder like why you respond a certain way? in a hard situation, like, I don't like that. God's working on your heart. This week, uh, you know, all cards on the table. Uh, I love my kids that I, I responded in a, in a not so positive way. And I'm like, why did I do that? I'm like, oh, because I'm a broken sinner and I need Jesus. But it allowed me to see areas that weren't pure, that weren't whole, that weren't perfect, that weren't teleos, Right? And so God loves you enough to put that pressure to remove the things that hinder you from loving him and reflecting him appropriately. And that's the thing with like, at the end of the day when all this stuff comes to the top, the refiner takes this stick and he scrapes the top off and all the dross and he pretty goes away and all that's left is the perfect gold that is there. And that is what God is doing in your life. How we respond is who we really are. And that's what James wants us to understand. That's why he cares how we live our lives. He cares what we do. It reflects our faith and who we are in Jesus. And he wants these men and women to have that teleos in their lives to be whole and complete and become mature in their Christian life. And for you as well, this is for all Christians. It's not just for them in Jerusalem, it's for us. We can grow and learn through this. 17, uh, verse 17, it just really restates the goodness of God, that he is a good God, that he's a kind God. And then in 18, it really points to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's talking about the gospel is what he's talking about. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the world of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. That the gospel, as it penetrates our heart, it changes the essence and the nature, the very DNA of who we are. It's like we were a tree that, that produced oranges, and now he's like, you're a tree that produces apples. See, who we are determines what we do, what we have our faith in, and that's what he's saying. What fruit are you going to produce in your life? And that's what I want us to explore for the next 12 weeks, 13 weeks. What's going on in your life? And at times, you're going to be uncomfortable with the conversations that James wants to have. But it's not because he's here to condemn you. It's because he loves you and he's encouraging you to, to reject areas that we may be believing things that are false about God. And so we'll do it together. And just so you know, half the time I'm preaching to myself up here. And we can all grow together, we can all struggle together, and we can all have all the conversations in our life groups together, okay? So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to move into a time of communion.